2,000 years ago, you would not find a newspaper in the Roman Empire that would run the headline, Jewish Baby Born in Bethlehem. Nobody cared, frankly. The hot news was in Rome itself. The hot names were Augustus, a little farther to the east, Quirinius, over in Syria. And in Israel, the only highlighted one would be Herod, Herod the Great, he liked to call himself. But looking back over time, the fame of those individuals pales in comparison to the fame and influence of the name that we all celebrate, the name of Jesus Christ. Now, we're in the middle of a series that we've called Rediscovering Our Foundations, and it's the building blocks of the historic Christian faith. And last time we met, we looked at the identity of Jesus Christ, and tonight we look at the nativity of Jesus Christ, his birth. Next time, we'll probably look at his maturity, his ministry, and then finally his death. So in the next few weeks, we're going to be studying Jesus Christ and tonight his birth. And what a fitting time of the year, as tomorrow is, I think, December 1st, and we're entering officially into the Christmas season. I remember back as a kid putting up the manger scene in my parents' home. That was my job every year at Christmas, and I liked it. And I still remember the manger set that we had. It was porcelain. We had a nice little wooden stable. Uh, We even had an angel that we suspended on a wire over the stable with a star. It was pristine. It was temperature-controlled. It smelled good. In other words, it was absolutely inaccurate as to the very first setting in Bethlehem. Now tonight, I'm probably going to shatter some of what you thought was traditionally Christmas. Some of those thoughts of the first setting in Bethlehem, those long-standing assumptions. And I'm going to shatter them, not because I like to shatter them, But because we, in our culture, we've sort of uh, Disneyed up Christmas, haven't we? I mean, we've even added snow to the scene. We've now named the wise men. And we've even added added a little shepherd boy. Excuse me, a little drummer boy. So the, the Magi have names and there's a drummer boy. Now, none of that is found in the Bible. But it's found as a part of our tradition. And frankly, we like that. We don't like anybody messing with our tradition. But I'm going to do that tonight a little bit and take you back to the first setting in Luke chapter 2. First of all, just a a note as to when Jesus Christ was born. Now, it was December 24th as a kid when I would look at that little manger scene and I would imagine those shepherds on a very cold night watching their sheep thinking, man, it must have been cold over there. And uh, you can imagine my disappointment when I discovered shepherds don't watch flocks in December out in the fields at night. And I was even more shocked to discover that Jesus wasn't born December 25th. In all probability, he was born somewhere around the Passover season, same season of his death. And so it's asked by so many people, well, how do we get December 25th then? Let me give you a little sketch. Around the 4th century A.D., Christians really wanted to find out when Jesus was born. Nobody really knew. 
There were all sorts of different dates that had been celebrated. January 6th was one of them. A more popular, it was celebrated on March 29th, April the 20th, May the 20th, as well as September the 29th. All of those were popular dates where the birth of Christ was celebrated. And notice, not a one of them was December 25th. So right around then, that part of the 4th century, the bishop of Jerusalem named Cyril wrote a letter to the bishop of Rome named Julius as to when Jesus was born. Julius wrote back and said, well, gee, I've always favored December 25th. So 354 A.D., two years after the reign of Julius as bishop of Rome, Iberius, the new bishop of Rome, almost enforced it and said all of the followers of Christ must celebrate Christmas on December 25th. Now, tonight we want to look not at the date, because really that doesn't matter, really, does it? Do we really care if he was born December 25th? Isn't it more important that he was born, that he came, that he gave us life? But as to the manner of his birth, now I love the songs as much as you do. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Or, O holy night. Truth be told, it would be more accurate to sing probably, O hectic night. O little town of Bethlehem, how feverishly busy we see thee lie. Because remember, there is a census in place and there is a mass movement of population. It is pandemonium in Bethlehem. Let me tell you how they got there, Joseph and Mary. They didn't take rapid transit. They went 90 miles from Nazareth down to the city of David, Bethlehem. Usually in those days, 20 miles a day was hoofing it with the rough terrain of Nazareth and Judea and carrying a woman who's pregnant. They were doing good if they could make 10 miles a day. So the journey from Nazareth down to Bethlehem would take anywhere from a week to 10 days. They would have to carry their own provisions. You can just see these donkeys loaded up probably with wineskins filled with water and cloth bags filled with bread. Their breakfast would consist of dried bread. Their lunch would consist of bread with oil and herbs and their dinner the same. Then they get to Bethlehem and they go to an inn. And don't picture an inn like we have today. It was no holiday, believe me. It was simply a a barn with beds. But there wasn't even any room in that. And so Jesus was born in a manger. I'll describe that, but let's read the text in Luke chapter 2, shall we, together? And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed or engaged wife, who was with child. 
So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. That's the story that we look at tonight. We're going to look at this, a little bit of Matthew 2, tiny little bit out of Isaiah chapter 9. The birth of Jesus Christ, his entrance into the world, speaks, first of all, of his humility. I mean, look at this setting, swaddling cloths and a manger. There is nothing in the scripture to support the tradition that Jesus was born in a wooden stable. I know all the nativity sets usually have that, but that just isn't how they did things back then. They didn't build things out of wood for animals. Animals were kept in caves. Mangers were feeding troughs. It was like a stone table, no wood, stone table, and a little lip of stone all the way around. Hay was put on top. Food was placed in it. It was a feeding trough for animals. One author paints this realistic picture. He says, Were someone to chance upon that sheep enclosure in the outskirts of Bethlehem that morning, what a peculiar scene they would behold. The cave stinks, like all stables do. The stench of urine, dung, and sheep reeks pungently in the air. The ground is hard, the hay is scarce, cobwebs cling to the ceiling, and a mouse scurries across a dirt floor. A more lowly, humble place of birth could not exist. Near the young mother sits the weary father. If anyone is dozing, it's him. He can't remember the last time he sat down. And now that the excitement has subsided a bit, now that Mary and the baby are comfortable, he leans against the wall of the stable and feels his eyes grow heavy. He still hasn't figured it all out. The mystery of the event puzzles him, but he hasn't the energy to wrestle with the questions. What's important is that the baby is fine and Mary is safe. Wide awake is Mary. My, how young she looks. Her head rests on the soft leather of Joseph's saddle. The pain has been eclipsed by wonder. She looks into the face of the baby, her son, her Lord, his majesty. At this point in history, the human being who best understands who God is and what he is doing is a teenage girl in a smelly cave. What a thought, isn't it? Humility. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ in such humble setting symbolizes what his entire life would be from cradle to the cross, absolute humility. He was born in a cave. He said to his disciples on one point, birds of the air have nests, foxes have holes, but the Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay his head. And when he died, he was buried in a borrowed tomb. God didn't have to do things that way. It didn't have to be in humility. It could have been in splendor. I mean, why not aristocratic parents? Why not Rome General Hospital? God could have done that. And after all, since he is God, the King, Messiah, why not a golden bed with satin sheets? And let's throw CNN in to cover it. God didn't do that. He could have provided an army of servants, angels perhaps, to attend to every whim, every beck and call of the parents. Even an orchestra in the background playing soft music, 
during the birth of the child. He didn't do that, and here's why. Paul said he made himself of no reputation. Or the New Living Translation, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Some of you know the word behind that. It's kenosis. He poured himself out to the very last drop in becoming a man. What could be more humble then than this? A frail baby, the stepson of a carpenter peasant born in a cave. Talk about simple wrapping, huh? The greatest gift to the world in the simplest of wrapping. This next month, you're going to be buying presents and getting a few as well. And probably they're going to be wrapped. Now, it's interesting that some people will spend more time and attention and even money on the wrapping than the gift. There are even stores that are wrapping stores. They will wrap the present for you, and there is a variety, a huge array of selected papers and bows to choose from. Uh, That's all cool, but let me just give a hint to you gals. It's an absolute waste of time on the male species (laughs) to wrap presents in a beautiful manner. You ever seen a guy open a gift? He doesn't do it elegantly. He doesn't care. It's (sighs) trashes it. Very much the same way the world treated God's gift. Trashed him. The greatest gift in a simple wrapping, his humility. Also, this scene speaks of his incompatibility. What I mean by that, the world had no room for him. Look at verse 7. She brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths. That was the custom, incidentally. Short strips of cloth around the arms and the legs, especially the hands, to protect the child. We put mittens over kids nowadays. They put swaddling cloths then laid him in a manger, a feeding trough, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, I mentioned that the inns were different. Don't think of a motel. Don't think of a hotel. Don't think of cable TV or a pool or a restaurant. Think of a barn. Scholars call it a caravansary, a place where caravans will stop. The modern term would be con, K-A-H-N. It was a Square structure, a square stone edifice, courtyard in the middle, and rooms along the side, the floors of which were raised maybe 18 inches off the ground, just to give you a little separation from the animals right outside the door. That was the inn. The inns were full. Virtually the entire population were nomads. They were all traveling to their place of origin, their forefathers. So simply there's no room anywhere to spend the night because everybody, virtually everyone, is looking for an inn. However, be that as it may, in a simple fashion, there was no room in the inn. At the same time, this would speak of history yet future. There was no room for Christ back then in the inn, and for so many people there still is no room. That's what Jesus said. He came into his own and his own did not receive him. Isaiah predicted it. He is despised, he said, and rejected among men. There still is no room for Christ. 
It's not just a piece of history of travelers where he couldn't get a night. There just is no room in people's lives anymore. Even at Christmas time. 2,000 years ago, the inns were full, and I would say the political inns were full. Right? I mean, think of Herod the Great. Did Herod really care that the Messiah was born, the king of the Jews? Did he go, great? Oh, he pretended he did. He said, search him out. I want to worship him, Matthew chapter 2. But we know what he did. He was so power hungry. He was so intimidated, so threatened. By the way, here's why. Um, Herod the Great was given authority by Rome, but he gave himself the title, Herod the King of the Jews. So imagine what he thought when these Eastern guys come and say, where is the one who is born King of the Jews? We have seen his star and we are here to worship him. Oh, really? And so a decree went out to kill all of the male children two years and younger in hopes of stamping out this intruder. You see, Herod was a professional politician. He would stop at nothing at keeping his office. History tells us he murdered two of his own sons, his oldest sons, because they might get on the throne. They were next in line. So... Solution, he killed them. In fact, there was a saying that went around 2,000 years ago. The saying was this, it's safer to be Herod's pig than his son. Indeed it was. And now Herod, the politician, wants to put Jesus out. Now, I don't want to make a huge deal of this, but I do want to say that I believe politics still has no room for Jesus Christ. Well, they talk about separation of church and state They hold on to that, but what they mean by that is we want a huge distance between God and government. We want God out of government, frankly. In fact, we'll fight to take in God we trust off the coins, off the paper, out of the courthouses, throw the Bibles out. That's the kind of separation that the political world is vying for. Except around election time. Around election time, politicians love to court the church. They show up and they smile and I'm involved in this fellowship and glory to God. And then after the election, bye bye Back in 1984, two congressmen were disciplined by the House of Representatives for immoral behavior. One was a conservative, one was a liberal. The conservative was... Uh, very anti-abortion on demand, anti-pornography. And he stood publicly and repented of what he had done, said it was wrong, even voted with his colleagues that he himself be censured. The media was not satisfied with that. They dogged him, called him a hypocrite, went back to past inconsistencies, and they were not impressed with his repentance. The second congressman was a liberal. He stood for abortion, for pornography, and he was absolutely defiant. In fact, he said, I've done nothing wrong. And as you would expect, the press was much more lenient and favorable toward the liberal, pro-abortion, pro-pornography than the conservative, even though he had repented publicly. Why is that? Simply because that world is much more comfortable with immorality than repentance. Politics has no room 
I'm not saying don't get involved, but I'm saying if you try, this is what you'll be up against, an unfavorable system. Not only was the political end full 2,000 years ago, so was the religious end. Let's think about that for a minute. Religion 2,000 years ago had no room for Christ. Here's how I know. Matthew chapter 2, and you might want to look at it later, Herod the Great has a meeting with the religious elite, the scribes and the chief priests. Because these wise guys, I mean these wise men came from the east and said, where is the Messiah? So he had a little conference and he said, tell me about this Messiah. Where is he to be born? And what's interesting is that these chief priests quoted, cited chapter and verse. They immediately said, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written in the prophet. And they quoted Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, though you be small among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth the one who is to be the ruler of Israel. And they cited it. They quoted it. They knew it verbatim by heart, but they really could care less. I mean, wouldn't you think if wise men traveled hundreds of miles from the east to check out a baby who they say is the Messiah because we saw a wonder in the sky, that these guys would be the slight bit curious and maybe tag along? But it was almost like, oh yeah, Bethlehem, that's what the Bible says. They could care less. In fact, 30 years later, they conspired his death was those very same ones that shouted out, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! They had no room for Him. It is the same now, friends. Religion has no place for Jesus. Never has. Really never will. Oh, yeah. Jesus is all right as long as you say He's a great moral teacher, a good example, and all roads lead to God. Jesus happens to be one of them. Okay, that's all right then. But the minute the real Jesus speaks up and says, I am the way, the truth, the life. Nobody will ever go to heaven unless he comes by me. Whoa! Religion will quickly dump him. Isn't it ironic that in Revelation, Jesus says these words to the church? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open the door, I will come in and have fellowship with him and he with me. We love to quote that to unbelievers. Jesus was speaking it to those who claim to be his. I'm knocking. Let me in. Let me into the church. So his birth speaks of his incompatibility. Third, it speaks of his personality. Now I want you to look at verse 4 and consider a few things. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was, called, who was with child. So it was, while they were there, the days were accomplished for her to be delivered. You have a young man, you have a young woman, they're engaged, they have never been intimate, she's pregnant. Go back to chapter 1. Let's just get a little bit of background. I know you know this. If you've celebrated one Christmas in your lifetime. But go back to Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin. We know what that is. We don't have to explain, do we? 
betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, seeing I do not know a man? The angel answered and said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, the Holy One who will be born will be called the Son of God. One other text. Go over to chapter 3. This is sort of a sandwich version here. Verse 23. Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being, notice, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. All of these verses speak plainly to one thing, a unique personality. He was virgin born. Jesus Christ was the only baby ever born without a human father, conceived by the Holy Spirit. It is Isaiah the prophet that combines the two when he predicts in chapter 9, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Those aren't there just for poetic reasons. Child is born, son is given. They mean something. One speaks of his humanity, the other speaks of his deity. Combined, they speak of his unique personality, fully God, fully man. Unto us a child is born. This is Bethlehem. Jesus was born like any other baby was born. Now, I've heard stories that when Mary was in labor, she didn't feel any pain And all sorts of fanciful stories, Jesus was born like any other human would be born into this world. A child was born. The evangelical church traditionally and to its credit has defended the deity of Christ, that he is God. We've done a good job of it. What a lot of us fail to recognize is the first heresy in the church was not a denial of the deity of Christ. It was a denial of the humanity of Christ. Did you know that? They called it Gnosticism. And the Gnostics believed that Jesus Christ didn't have a human physical body, that when he walked on the sand, he didn't leave footprints and all sorts of fanciful stories. Never forget that God became human. Jesus was absolutely, fully a human being. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John Weberg had the boldness to write it this way. There is God in the flesh, thriving in a placenta, protected by a water bag, bouncing on a donkey ride to Bethlehem where his folks had to meet the local IRS. No different than any other baby at the time, God deep in the flesh became God deep in the straw, 
Mary, the mother of the Creator, sustained the one who sustained everything. A child is born. That's part of his personality. But Isaiah predicted, and it's alluded to in what we just read, unto us a son is given. Now, notice the wording is different. Children are born, but here it is, a son is given. This suggests pre-existence. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The wording suggests pre-existent deity. God stepped into the world. Now, even as Jesus Christ is the only baby in the world who didn't have a human father, Jesus Christ is the only person who existed before he was born. How's that for you? He said, before Abraham was, I am. He didn't become God after a period of time on earth. He didn't awake one day when he was 30 years old and go, oh, I'm God now. He was God pre-Bethlehem, pre-Mary. This is the incarnation, God becoming flesh. If you want the theological term, he is theanthropos, or the theanthropic personality. I know it sounds erudite, but it's simple. Theos, God. Anthropos, man. God and man in one package. You're going, huh? That's what Paul said, but in a little bit better terminology. He said, great is the mystery of godliness, God manifest in the flesh. That's a wonderful, biblical, poetic way of going, huh? It's a mystery. Think of this. The one who created all the food supplies on the earth and fed people who were hungry was himself hungry. He was weary, and yet he is our rest. He paid taxes, and yet he is the king of kings. He prayed, and yet he hears all of our prayers. He weeps, and yet he dries our tears. He was sold for 30 pieces of silver, but he redeemed the world. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, but he's the good shepherd. His death is what gives us life, and by dying he destroyed death. He was larger than the universe, but he became an embryo inside of a girl. Great is the mystery of godliness. Now, why did he do that? Why this unique personality? Why the bother? Why the trouble? And this is important because people go, well, is the virgin birth really important? It's crucial for this reason. As a man, Jesus was the perfect representative of humanity. He was one. He experienced physical human death. Perfect representative. But as God, he was perfectly sinless. Therefore, he is the perfect sacrifice for sins. Thus, in his death, he could take a hold of God the Father, take a hold of humanity who were at this point not reconciled to each other, and being the God-man, bring them together and say, you can meet, you can have fellowship. That's his ministry. Fourth and finally, his birth shows us his accessibility. His accessibility. Listen, there's nothing intimidating about a feeding trough. 
right? Anybody can come and not feel intimidated by that. A manger doesn't speak of wealth and status and pomp and fame, does it? A cave, a feeding trough, even the poorest of the poor could come and feel comfortable. The rich would have more problem. They'd have to get humbler quicker. The poor would have no problem. You might have trouble getting into the White House or Buckingham Palace or have to show your ID to get in the health club, for that matter. But not a manger. Not a cave with a little baby. Absolute accessibility. The shepherds did. Beginning in verse 8, there were in the same country shepherds living out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. You you know the story. I'm not going to even read it to you. Go down to verse 16. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph the babe lying in the manger. No intimidation, absolute accessibility. Even shepherds who were despised by the elite came walking in. Sometime later, the Magi came. These were the kings. So you have from the lowest to the highest strata of society all able to gain access. Now, what happened at his birth continued through his life, didn't it? Jesus was accessible to people. He was. In fact, he got mad at the disciples who tried to protect him. When the moms and dads brought their little kids for Jesus to bless him, the disciples said, Don't trouble the master. Jesus got ticked. Allow the children to come unto me, he said. This is the kingdom of God. The time when he was on the way to heal Jairus' daughter, who was deathly ill, and they needed to get there quickly, there was a woman in the crowd who had a disease for 12 years, a flow of blood. There wasn't a doctor in Galilee who could fix her. She touched Jesus, and Jesus stopped and said, Hey, who touched me? Disciples were thinking, who didn't touch you? You're in a crowd, man. Everybody touched you. Jesus said, no, I perceive power has gone out of me. And there was that woman right there. And I'm sure Jairus is going, can we go now? It's my daughter who's dying. But Jesus stopped, spent time and had an open access in his personality for this sick woman. And then went on his way. Finally at the cross. His death on the cross is what gained us access, isn't it? So that even though if you weren't there 2,000 years ago to hang out with Jesus one-on-one face-to-face, because he's the God-man who on the cross died for the sins of the whole world, anyone who is willing can come and gain access because of his death. That's the gospel. Hebrews 10 elucidates on that. And so, dear friends, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. This is the new life-giving way that Christ has opened up for us through the sacred curtain by means of his death. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's people, let us go right into the presence of God with true hearts, fully trusting him. From birth to death, Jesus showed accessibility, and the ultimate unveiling was the cross, where the veil was torn, and Jesus said, come on in. So that was his life. He was born among common animals. He died among common criminals. He demonstrated humility 
came in a simple wrapping, not satin sheets, in Rome General Hospital. His birth showed incompatibility. People just don't have time, just don't have room. They got their own agenda. His birth shows his divine and human personality, God and human flesh, and finally, accessibility. Anyone can come. Anybody can be accepted. The question is, will you? Will you receive the gift, humble as it might look in a manger, awesome as it truly is in reality, will you receive God's gift through His Son in salvation? I'll tell you what, this Christmas season, millions of Americans won't. They'll celebrate it, they'll give and receive, and they'll bypass the real gift. Will you make room for Him in your life? Will you come to the manger, to the cross? I'm going to ask you this in closing, and just answer it honestly in your own heart. Was there a time in your personal life that you can remember asking Jesus to occupy your heart like he occupied that manger? I want you to come into my heart, my life, and stay there, occupy it, live there. Is there a time you have personally, honestly done that? I'm not asking have you gone to church, prayed a few prayers, wept some tears, and even bought a book that you're supposed to carry when you come to church. Have you made room for him? And is he occupying your life tonight? Ask anybody who's authentically done that, and you'll find a common denominator. They all have an unusual peace about them. An unusual and some think weird smile. Let me give you a little trivia. You've heard the term bedlam, which means confusion. You know that it actually comes from the word Bethlehem? It's a corruption of the term. It came from the 1500s. Here's the story. There was a hospital for the insane in London, England, called St. Mary's of Bethlehem. In the 1500s, you could buy a ticket to come into the insane asylum and heckle the inmates. It became one of London's favorite pastimes. St. Mary's of Bethlehem, over time, was shortened to just Bethlehem. Let's go to Bethlehem tonight. Got nothing to do. And that got further shortened and corrupted to Bedlam. You know, you can hear a Brit saying it. Let's go to Bedlam. All right, go on. So the term in our language came to mean utter confusion, pandemonium, noise. Let me ask you something. Is your life a Bethlehem where Christ lives or a Bedlam of confusion? We're right at the beginning of the Christmas season. I pray that this will be a bit different. Don't get sucked into the vortex. It's pretty powerful, isn't it? It starts the day after Thanksgiving. The sales, you feel like you're being flushed. (laughs) Sorry for that analogy. There's a... There's a legend that uh, 
The legend says that Satan and his demons were having a Christmas party. And as the different demons were on their way out, one of them said, Merry Christmas, Your Majesty. And Satan growled back to him, Yes, keep it merry. Because if they ever take it seriously, we're all in trouble. Hey, take it seriously. Take God sending His Son for you seriously. Take the manger more seriously than a little pine-scented setting or something displayed on merchants' windows. Take it as God's ultimate gift for you, for your sins and my sins. Make room. Do it now. Heavenly Father, what we read is a story that happens so often In unannounced humility, you come to a life and you knock. But the values of heaven are incompatible with the values of earth. But Lord, you want to impose your unique divine personality upon people. But you won't do it without an invitation. You make yourself accessible and yet so few come. Lord, beckon more to come tonight and during this holiday season. May more receive the gift of eternal life. May more make room for the real, authentic, historic, life-changing Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Christ.